Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 72. Have you been hearing about the popular framework FastAPI? An application programming interface, API, is vital to make your software accessible to users across the internet. And FastAPI is a great choice for quickly creating a web API that implements best practices. This week on the show, David Amos is back, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We share an introduction to FastAPI written by the framework's author, Sebastian Ramirez. The goal behind the article is to get you started creating production-ready APIs. David covers an article about the Python import system and how it remains a mystery for many Python developers. We share some additional real Python resources on the import system and statements. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a buffet of specialized data types with Python's collections module. Maps with Django using Geo, Django, Post, GIS, and Leaflet. Moving SciPy to the Mason build system. What's new in Python 3.11? A community-maintained Python framework for creating mathematical animations and easily make PDFs with PDFMe. This episode is brought to you by Sentry, helping developers see issues that matter, solve those issues in minutes, and learn insights to keep their applications running at peak performance. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Welcome back. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right. So we got a nice collection of PyCoder stuff this week. Yeah. And a couple of real Python things in there, as usual. For sure. And I'm kind of excited to, to get rolling. So what do you got? First one comes from our good friend, Leodanis Kozoramos. It's a Python's collections, a buffet of specialized data types. And we've talked about the collections module several times on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> I think even recently, the last couple of times we've done, done a podcast together. So the collections module includes things like name tuple, which I, I believe we've talked about, the default dict and the counter class, which we may have even talked about was the last time that I was on, or maybe the time before that. This article is is really just kind of an overview of what's inside the whole collections module, as opposed to, you know, kind of a deep dive on individual things, and kind of ties together everything that has been put out recently on, on these other data structures. But it also goes into some things that, that we don't have uh, articles on currently, and things that we haven't talked about on the podcast. And it mentions, you know, the motivation behind the collections module and why you would want to learn it, you know, learning how to write more Pythonic code and and, and leverage the uh, these built-in data structures that are there for you. So it gives you a quick overview and talks about things like uh, the deck, which is a double-ended queue, which is a really great one to be, be aware of, the default dict, the name tuple. I guess I could describe what some of these things are. Like default dict is it's a way to associate uh, like a, a, a specific type or data structure for any key, like all keys would have kind of the same type, like a list or a set or something along those lines. And and it gives you a way to 
like if you try to do something with a key that doesn't exist yet, you've got like a default there that it'll start with, you know, some kind of empty collection of that, whatever that default is or whatever the type is that you have assigned to it. And, uh, and you can write some really clean code that way. So it talks about that, the name tuple, which we've mentioned, which is a, one of my favorites in the, the collections module, a way to give names to the components of a tuple, like the slots in it, which is which is really handy. And then you can access them with like the dot notation. So you could actually have a tuple, an immutable tuple data structure that not only could you access by components by index, but you could do like a, like maybe it's a, it represents like a row in a database table where you've got, you know, people and you've got first name and last name, and you can actually have those names associated to that and do, you know, dot first name, dot last name to, to get those. Yeah. I think that's such a really powerful thing to return, you know, from a, from a function to have all that kind of extra control. Yeah, exactly. And it like, so for each of these, it mentions like kind of like, you know, good examples of use cases for this. And that's actually one of the ones in, uh, for the name tuple is, you know, as a return value for something you've maybe read a CSV file or read something from a database and you're going to return a record or multiple records in a, in a list or something. And you, and you can use the name tuple, tuple like that to give a little bit more friendlier API on that, on what, what you get back from, from that function. And it gets into the, the order dict, which uh, I think we've talked about some uh, as well. And uh, the counter, which we've talked about. Yeah, we did that one last time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And something called uh, the chain map, which is like a dictionary-like class that allows treating a number of mappings as a single dictionary object. So it's sort of like if you have several dictionaries that you need to maybe say iterate over those dictionaries all together, you don't need to do any sort of like complicated dictionary unions or, 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 or you know merging or things like that. You can use this chain map to sort of chain them all together in a way and, and loop over that. So that's a really uh, neat one. And then it also talks about some of these un- maybe unusual sounding classes that are in collections called user dict, user list, and user string. And so these are wrapper classes around the built-in dictionary list and string objects that are really meant, like if you're going to create your own kind of custom dictionary Rather than, say, subclassing from the built-in dict type, you would subclass from user dict. Uh, you, can, you can argue whether or not you would want to do something like that or, or you know, do something more like uh, composition. Like I think we've talked about the, kind of the composition versus inheritance thing on here. But those are, I think, kind of little-known features of, of collections or that you may not even be aware that these things exist in, in Python at all. So the article just gives you a, a, a good overview of, of everything that's available and, and kind of a quick you know, quick examples of how you can use these. And then we've got several articles here on Real Python that do you know, deep dives into these things. Yeah, much deeper. <laughs> so you can kind of continue learning by, you know, clicking clicking through to those, the ones that you're, you're most interested in. So definitely a good one to check out because I think collections is one of those things that, you know, it, it really kind of takes your Python programming to the next level once you learn how to use everything that's in there. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the the test questions and that database of stuff that we found, the the GitHub types of interview questions. And again, you can kind of do it sometimes the longer way with just base Python without kind of importing, you know, stuff from the collections module. Right. But then this can really speed it all up and and make it look a lot cleaner and potentially add a, a lot of additional methods and stuff to just really make things much more functional in, in a great 
in a kind of nice, useful way. Yeah, and potentially more performant as well. Yeah, yeah, right. If it's written down at that C layer. Yeah, exactly. Being ready to go. Yeah, cool. Awesome. What you got? So my first one is a, a an article by Paolo Melchiori. I'm gonna, it's Italian, so I'm not not sure if I got that pronounced exactly right. But it's a second part of a series he's doing that's called Maps with Django. And this one is focusing with Geo, it's hard to say, Geo Django, <laughs> PostGIS, and Leaflet. And Leaflet is a JavaScript library that is super, super lightweight for doing mapping. And then the Geo Django and the PostGIS is adding all those kind of you know, coordinate-based libraries to, well, the Django part of it is helping you with, you know, the whole model structure and talking to databases and right. connecting all that. And then this post GIS is kind of this additional layer to help get the GIS information inside there. And it's a, it's a guide. I would have to say that it's, it's optimized for running on Linux. He's much more of a Linux kind of based guy. I was having some struggles getting it all set up inside my Mac, but I was impressed by just the set of instructions that you need to get started and going is actually pretty quick. Yeah. The the types of templates that you need to build are, you know, pretty small. And similarly, the the type of information you have to build into your models. Django has built a lot of this stuff in. It really has all these connections with this Geo Django module built in, ready to go. And so if you're interested in doing mapping you know, web-based stuff with Python. And, and again, you want to have it out there as a project. I think this would be a really good starting point for you to kind of get you going. He he covers quite a few of the, you know, just kind of getting things set up, uh, you know, all the base Django, build your Django project and virtual environment and that sort of stuff. And then it gets into, you know, creating uh, the static files and then eventually getting up when you add that JavaScript library for leaflet, you suddenly then, you know, very quickly have this leaflet map of the, of the entire world, which is really cool. And then, yeah. And then it dives deep into geo Django and this thing called G doll and getting that installed, wiring it up. Eventually you wire as a backend instead of the sort of default of a SQL light database, which is kind of the Django like wired and default. You modify it to talk to Postgres. Yeah. And so the Postgres SQL and that uses the psycho PG2 binary package. So you're adding that. And so it really is kind of a nice project to kind of get you going in that direction. I'll share a real Python article and course that covers the same stuff. So I'll include links for that that we had from a couple of years back by Ahmed Bouchefra. That one's called Make a Location Based Web App with Django and Geo Django. So that's another resource for you if you're interested in diving into that. And then Jackie Wilson made a, a video course for it also. So yeah, uh, lots of stuff to kind of check out there. If you're interested in playing around with post GIS and Django and, you know, mapping. Yeah. And it looks like Halo has some, some plans for some, you know, to continue the series. Yeah. I saw at the end of the article, he talks about future articles he's going to talk about. Uh, so in, in this article, you, you basically, create like a set of markers on the map so like little pins at specific locations and he he's going to get into like uh, filtering that data and adding like uh, pop-ups to those kinds of things how to cluster markers to make loading data more efficient 
and using geocoding services to add marker locations starting from an address and things like that. So yeah, if you're interested in this, it sounds like a good series to follow along with and yeah. stay up to date on. This is only part two, I guess. <laughs> Let's see how, far, how many articles it takes to add the, all that additional stuff. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it literally has stay tuned at the end, <laughs> yep. which is great. So what's your next one? Next one is kind of, I guess, more of a kind of a news announcement and also something to think about if you are a package maintainer that has to build, you know, create builds of your, your package for distribution. One thing that somehow I, I had missed, and I'm, I'm not sure how I, I missed this, or maybe I knew about it at one point and then forgot about it. In Python, for a long history now, if you need to build like a, a distribution or something, a distributable for your package, you use the distutils module. And that's been the way it's done for quite a while. However, packaging ecosystem has been undergoing quite a bit of changes over the last few years, and things are really kind of starting to ramp up with that. And in Python 3.10, which will be released this October, this coming October of 2021, the distutils package, or excuse me, the distutils module will be deprecated. And in Python 3.12, the plan is to remove it altogether. So packages that rely on distutils only have a couple more years before they really, like, you've got to do something about it. You've got to figure out a new build system. And this article is called Moving SciPy to the Mason Build System. It's written by Ralph Gommers. And uh, SciPy uses actually not the, uh, the disk details that comes with Python, but a, uh, a kind of an extension to distutils that is inside of the NumPy library. And so the, they use NumPy distutils, and that directly depends on the built-in distutils and also the setup tools as part of its uh, build system. So the removal of distutils is going to have a pretty major impact on SciPy. And the maintainers have already, you know, before 3.10 is even out here, they've already started looking at, you know, what are we going to do to move forward with this? How are we going to handle our builds? And they basically narrowed it down to two choices. There's the CMake tool, which if you're on uh, Linux, you probably have had some experience with this. The other option is something called Mason. And after some experimentation, Ralph says he had a strong preference for Mason for a couple of different reasons. One, it has really great documentation, which he says is unlike CMake, <laughs> and it's easy to contribute to. It's a, it's only I say only it's it's about twenty five thousand lines of pure Python code, compared to about a million lines of C and C plus plus for CMake. So if if you you know have a feature that you need and you want to contribute to that, you know, you're only talking about, you know, handling, well, it's pure Python, first of all, and it's, you know, a much smaller code base. So it's easier to kind of digest and, and understand. Right. And then on top of that, he explores some of the benefits he found in his experimentation. The biggest one being that Mason is uh, incredibly fast. And he gives some, some statistics here showing that, you know, with the current NumPy distutils-based build, building all of SciPy takes about uh, seven minutes to, to build. But but the Mason build takes about a little under four seconds. <laughs> so it's a pretty, Holy cow. pretty uh, massive yeah. uh, speed up and, and build. So that's really cool. That's, that's going to save a lot of time. 
it offers some better uh, debugging tools. And he gives some examples of, of that and how that's going to help them. Talks about how cross-compiling is going to become possible. That for years they've had to tell people, sorry, Disutils wasn't really made for cross-compiling. You know, let us know if you have any luck, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. But now they'll be able to support more, more architectures. And Mason makes that a lot uh, simpler for them. Mason allows developers to use multiple builds at the same time. Hmm. And it comes with more development tools out of the box. And kind of going back to the code base thing, build build definitions are easier to understand and, and uh, modify. So although he does say not everything was easier, but a lot of the common tasks that they have to that they have to do definitely were. So there's just a lot of benefits. Ralph describes some of the key Mason design principles and things that he liked about it. And then also mentions, you know, that not everything was smooth sailing. And he has a section called the sharp bits. And so he has kind of a collection of four things that he of kind of pain points that he found while doing it. But basically, it, you know, the the benefits that they are going to get from Mason far outweigh these uh, these pain points. And uh, so they basically decided this is probably the direction they're going to go. Right now, Ralph has a fork of SciPy that he's been experimenting with using these Mason builds. And uh, they're going to start working on incorporating that into, you know, upstream on the, on the main repository. So if you're a package maintainer and you're worried about this uh, distutils removal, in a couple of years, then uh, highly suggest you check this out and maybe start experimenting with uh, with Mason yourself and see what kind of benefits that offers your own your own project. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I mean, I think going forward, there's only going to be, I think, more types of hardware platforms. You know, with the way Apple's kind of moving with like their M1 architecture. Yeah, and and it looks like maybe Windows is you know trying to run on ARM, and then there's right. you know like a lot of different other manufacturers there. So having these other build systems is probably going to be, or having, you know, one that can support multiple platforms is, is, you know, yeah, gonna be is good. And the speed sounds like that's a huge, huge benefit. So that's nice. So this episode is brought to you by Sentry, helping developers see issues that matter, solve those issues in minutes and learn insights to keep their applications running at peak performance. What can you expect from Sentry? You get actionable insights and full context so you can fix your app's errors and optimize its performance. You get performance monitoring. Engineering managers and developers now have a single tool to trace Python performance issues back to poor performing API calls, as well as surface all related code errors. And with Sentry's error monitoring, you can understand the important events that led to each Python exception, be it SQL queries, debug logs, network requests, or past errors. Spend less time fixing bugs and more time building features. You can learn more at sentry.io slash 4FOR slash Python and sign up with the promo code REALPYTHON. That's all caps REALPYTHON to get three free months of Sentry's team plan. My next one is titled, What's New in Python 3.11? And you might be thinking, 3.11? (laughs) 3.10 is still in beta. You're right. It's still on you know track to come out here this fall but they're working on python 311 already um, yeah. python 310 is uh, locked as far as features but 311 is you know they're still working through what they think should be included and added and yeah i recently had this conversation with joanna if you didn't check it out with the about the python language summit and so there's a lot of those kind of ideas are being tossed around to, you know what are we going to do in python's future 
And so I don't really per se want to go point by point through this because it's actually fairly short. Yeah. I think more I'd like people to be aware that this is a resource for you to get a heads up and it's a placeholder to, you know, it'll be updated <laughs> and you could come back to it and say, okay, well, what is new? What's getting changed and, and modified and as they add more things. So one of the first ones is something that we discussed already a little bit where PEP 657 is, is starting to get implemented, which is adding these error locations and, and tracebacks and, and giving you the little carrots and things underlining or pointing to the portions of the statements or expressions that are probably to blame for these things, yeah. which is really cool. And it, it shows that more than like the couple of examples that we were pointing to those Twitter things a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like they have an example of a zero division error and it gives a head a heads up to which variable is probably causing this. Right. Yeah. Which is really great. And so again, you know, the, the idea of being able to locate the errors to to have improved tracebacks, to have all that kind of information be much more, you know, revealed is really going to make things, uh, I think, better and and really improve the experience of using Python uh, moving forward. Absolutely. The other big changes, as far as new modules, they don't have any yet. Uh, improved modules, um, you had noted in the PyCoders thing that th- there's some stuff added to math mm-hmm. um, and and some additions to fractions. The OS module, they're changing out which uh, sort of crypt cryptography thing it's using yeah it's using a now bcrypt which is good some changes to sql light they're removing some stuff which is also something that was discussed in those talks as far as the python language summit um like this smtp uh, method for this thing called mailman proxy yeah it requires an external module anyway so it doesn't make sense per se to have that like wired in and needing to be updated all the time as part of the language so right those are Great optimizations. And again, you can kind of look at these things. And I think, you know, it's always good to have an idea of, you know, where things are headed. And they have sections on porting your code across, what things potentially are going to be deprecated, like some of the conversations that we just talked about yeah. with uh, things like disk utils. So anyway, I think it's a, a nice uh, placeholder. Keep it, keep your eye on it and maybe check on what's happening there. And I think this will be good going forward as we move from 3.11 and you know 3.12 or whatever, as, how far we go up from there. Yeah. Especially with this sort of yearly scheduled system now that's becoming pretty pretty regular. It's a, yeah. a good place to keep an eye on. Yeah, for sure. And I really just, I like that, you know, kind of a theme I've noticed. Well, the, the release manager on, three, on 3.11 is the same release manager for 3.10. Yeah, Pablo Galindo. Pablo right? Galindo, yeah. And I'm not sure if he's also going to be the release manager for three point, but I've noticed a theme, you know, by following him on Twitter and seeing, you know, what what he's discussing there and everything is that really there's just so many user experience improvements that are coming in three point ten and also now it looks like in, in three point eleven, and I, I'm just excited to see that because I think that's an area where there are some real pain points for beginners. You know, we talk about Python being such a great language for beginners, and it is, right? but there are still some pain points, and a lot of those have to do with, you know, errors and tracebacks and things like that. And so it's just really great to see a lot of effort actually going into really trying to improve that. And and that's one of those things that, like, beginners experience these very quickly. <laughs> yeah. 
but it but it affects experienced developers as well. Like true, right? This is these are like true benefits for like no matter what level you're at, just across the spectrum. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So it's it's really it's just really great to see that taking place. Yeah, I'm excited by it, it, you know the releases are definitely in good hands, and and if anything, to me, you know, as somebody who again is sort of an intermediate person in this whole thing, I feel like. This is yet another form of documentation that 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 is you know getting improved every time you know I kind of come back to look at these things, which is great. Yeah, cool. So, what's your next one? The next one I've got uh, comes from a blog called Ten Thousand Meters, and the author is a uh, Victor Skvortsov, and we've featured several of his articles in this Python behind the scenes series in PyCoders, and maybe we've talked about one or two of them yeah. as well uh, here on the, the podcast. He's up to number 11 now, so it's it's been quite an extensive series. And this one is all about how the Python import system works. And I found it kind of funny. His blog is called 10,000 Meters, hmm. which sort of suggests that like you're taking this sort of like high-level view of things, right? Like yeah, I think the the US centric one is 10,000 feet view. Sure, yeah. But yeah, and this would be be much higher. <laughs> it would be that's true, yeah. <laughs> However, this feels like, you know, 10 like, you know, nanometers. Like it's really like kind of uh zoomed in and focused. Yeah, like okay. exploring things in a, a lot of lot of depth. And so the imports, he starts by saying, if you ask me to name the most misunderstood aspect of Python, I will answer without a second thought, the Python import system. And Mm. I think I kind of agree with that. Uh, You know, in my own journey, you know, it was sort of like, I learned how to import a module or a package. And then that was kind of it. Like, I didn't really think too much more about it until I needed to, which kind of came much later in, uh, in my Python career. And you start to realize that like, wow, there's actually, there's a lot going on there that is kind of happening behind the scenes and isn't exposed in the code. And it can create some interesting and very confusing issues for, for, for people because you'll, you'll, you know, I think every Python developer has at some point been doing something and you, you know, you're working, you've got the package installed and then you go to run your your program and you get an import error and it's like what like no this is installed like why can't you find this thing or you get an import error about you know trying to do some kind of relative import and there's no known parent package for it or things and it's like what what are you talking about like there is like i'm looking at it and there that is where you know these misunderstandings or just not having the kind of like in-depth knowledge of how the import system really works can can bite you and and you know become kind of a pain. Yeah. And so Victor talks about kind of starts at the beginning like, you know, here's here's just a simple import statement and talks about, you know, what's actually going on kind of behind the scenes. He takes a look at uh, some of the C Python code, uh, even the byte code and things like that just to kind of get a sense for like, okay, this is what happens when you, you know, you type an import. He talks about different kinds of modules. And again, that's something that if you, if you're just starting out with Python, you probably think of, uh, well, it's a module's a module, right? Like I created a Python file and then, you know, put some functions in it and then I can, I can import that. Well, 
there are many different kinds of modules and they all have their own little idiosyncrasies. There's built-in modules, right? Which just come built into the Python language. There's something called frozen modules. There's C extensions. There's the Python source code files, which is uh, like your the Python files that you create. Um, the bytecode files, the PYC files, maybe yeah. you've seen those. Those are things that you can actually import and things like that. And then directories and packages. And there's there's so many different things that can be imported and they all behave a little bit differently and, you know, are handled differently internally and and things like that, you know, sub packages and modules, things called regular packages, namespace packages. There's all sorts of things that uh, that you might not even be aware of. And so it kind of gives you this overview of like, okay, what are all the different kinds of things that you can import? What are all the different kinds of modules and packages? And then the different things you can do, wildcard imports, relative imports, absolute imports, running programs as modules, all sorts of stuff. So it gives you this really kind of high level overview of like the whole import thing, everything you can do with it. And then it really gets into some deep stuff and looking at the bytecode when, when you compile an import statement and uh, diving into the C Python source code itself to really examine the import process and, and how all of that works to really give you a, a deeper understanding of what, what's going on. And it kind of near the end gives you a, a full discussion of you know the path the python path and sys.path and you know maybe you've you've heard of these things or you've seen things about them and you don't know what that is real this really gives you a deep deep dive and and deep understanding of what all that entails and like when you say hey import this package called x well, where is it going to actually find that? And in what order is it searching for things? And what happens if you have two modules named X somewhere and you've got this name collision? How does it resolve that? So yeah, it's really, I mean, it really is like very in-depth and a, and a deep dive into how all this uh, all this works. So it's uh, it's a good read. It is fairly long, but I think, you know, it's it's a good a good place, you know, to just get that, that kind of full picture. Obviously, you can go a lot deeper than this. That you could probably write a a, a book on just <laughs> probably, importing yeah. things in in Python. <laughs> and Gerarda has tried, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so yeah, we do have some resources on Real Python as well about how all this works. We have an article on ap- absolute versus relative imports, and we've got an article on some kind of advanced tips and tricks on uh, imports and and things like that. So it doesn't, those don't get into all the details that this does. And there's things in those articles that are not discussed in this article. So if you really want to go on a deep dive, you know, maybe start with this one from Victor and then branch off into what we've got on real Python to kind of learn even more and, uh, and that. So, but yeah, I just wanted to highlight it because I, it is something that I think is misunderstood or that you probably or may not even realize that there's more to understand there. So, yeah. yeah. I like the examples are, are mostly REPL type examples. So you're just kind of working inside there and, and trying things out and not extremely in depth as far as like the steps you need to do to try the, right. the techniques out and kind of learn like, okay, well, that created this circular input. Well, why? And it shows that, which is really cool. Yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It covers the topic we touch on this week, and it's titled Python Modules and Packages, an Introduction. The course is based on a RealPython article by John Sturtz, 
and the instructor for the video course is me. And I'll show you what is a module, what is the module search path, how Python's dir function works, the how and why of reloading modules, executing a module as a script, what makes up a package, and how to work with sub-packages. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to work with Python modules and packages. So much of Python is done through importing and managing this process. And this is a solid introduction to the concepts. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So my next one is uh, an article that I'm excited to, to talk about because I've been hearing so much about Fast API for a long time. And uh, it's by the creator of the library, Fast API, Sebastian Ramirez. And it's titled Using Fast API to Build Python Web APIs. What I felt kind of initially was like, oh gosh, this is kind of a bit of a short guide. And I think mainly because it doesn't really require you <laughs> to do a whole ton of work to get this going <laughs> and running, which is really kind of nice. It was like, oh, that's it. The beauty of Fast <laughs> API, yeah. It, you know, hence the name, right? Um, yeah. And... You know, the, the setup of it is similar, in my opinion, to like, you know, setting up like a, a Flask app, yes. you know, how kind of quickly you could kind of just tie things together. The one addition is you're adding a, a library for uh, async work, which is this thing called Uvicorn, which I've talked about a couple of times with different people. Mm -hmm. This is thing that works with Starlet, which is another library that's also very specifically asynchronous. And anyway, so as you start to set this up, you're installing it, setting up the, the the basic kind of functionality. And then very quickly, you're looking at responses and it, it kind of showing you as this thing's acting as an API. And then what's nice is it has built-in endpoints for documentation, yeah, which are beautiful <laughs> yes. and very, very functional. And um, if you've used something like, um, I don't know, this is one I was talking about, but there's a thing called Postman, which was a, an API kind of tool I've used yeah. before where you can kind of, dabble back and forth and kind of figure out is this a get is this a post is this you know all these different kinds of things that you would normally do to talk to an api you can kind of try them out and this has a very similar feel and then it shows you the types of responses you would get and how things are defined and as you expand the, the idea i think the one of the primary benefits of the library is its connection with this thing called pydantic that we've talked about also which is you know handling the the types the specifically setting it up so that it's you know strongly typed mm -hmm. um and that way you are getting these benefits of knowing this is what it should be expecting and then it will present actual errors to you you know if if a user is trying to hit the api in a certain way with the wrong types and it, it'll you know ex explain that to the user and kind of show what's happening and then and it the article goes through you know data conversion and then the data validation um and then again setting up things with you know structures where you're looking at kind of creating like a, a json data model which they are calling a data shape yeah anyway it's a really quick guide uh it you know if you've heard about fast api and you're like oh gosh i don't have time to learn this new thing i think you can 
you know, maybe go through this whole thing in a half an hour and, and play through all the different examples and look at the documentation. The thing that I, I kind of wanted a little more from it is like, okay, well now let's implement it and you know, let's, let's throw it into like a, a database and toss it back and forth. But you have everything you need, you know, before that to kind of get going. And I think the documentation that comes with fast API does go to that next level. So you could kind of go into that with some tutorials there. Yeah. But it's the other neat thing that it shows is with this strong type checking kind of built into it, how the functionality inside of an IDE, like a VS code or a PyCharm or what have you, you get all this great auto completion and, and checks. And, you know, as you're playing with the, the data models, it, it, it will say, no, you can't do that. This is, should be, <laughs> you know, a string or an integer or what have you. And it, it's, you know, giving you heads up which you may not get when you're just kind of dealing with, you know, maybe a generic JSON kind of call or what have you to APIs. This is actually going to explicitly tell you through this checking system, which is, you know, again, one of the big goals of, of the system. Right. So, yeah, I was really impressed with, you know, again, with the brevity that's involved and how fast you can kind of get going with it. And it definitely is uh, people to start playing with it a lot more. So, yeah, I'm excited about uh, sharing it and um, seeing what else he's developing as he keeps going because it looks like this is like Sebastian's main focus yeah. going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a reason it's become so popular so fast. Yeah. It, it had the distinction of on the last like JetBrains PSF, the Python developer survey, it was the third, third most, uh, I forget the exact wording for it, but like third, I guess third most popular web framework mm-hmm. that you had Django, Flask, and then, or maybe it was Flask and then Django and then Fast API. And it had a surprisingly high mark, uh, you know, quote unquote market share of something like 12 or 13%, if I remember correctly. And it's like, I don't think it's even two years old. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's like, it hasn't been around that long. So yeah, and, you know, and there's a reason for that. And I think, you know, like you said, this this article kind of highlights that and just how quickly you can get up and running. That yeah, and definitely you know get in there and start playing around with the data and and like I said, the docs and this other Redox thing that's kind of built in is is very very handy for kind of playing with it. I mean, I've messed around with Django's kind of uh, API features, and we have an article that kind of goes into this, but there's a lot more setup and models and right. all that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. This is a, a much more streamlined in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Cool. I guess that brings us into projects. Yeah. It sounds like you are touching on a bit of a repeat <laughs> project, uh, at least sort of some, some interesting, some news there, which is cool. Yeah. So a while ago I featured a project called Manum, which is a really cool library for creating animations. And it, it, it was originally created by Grant Sanderson, who is better known as uh, Three Blue One Brown on YouTube, he's a just an amazing like uh, math communicator and uh, popul- popularizer. I think that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but uh, he, he put together this Manum library for creating animations for his YouTube videos. It's it is uh, you know kind of centered around like mathematical type animations, but you could use it for creating all sorts of you know, animations that just to like help like a visual aid for something you're trying to, to explain. And there is a new, well, within the last few months here, 
community maintained fork of Manum because one of the issues that Grant had was, you know, he's not a professional Python developer. He's not like he wasn't invested in really supporting Manum a whole lot or, you know, it was kind of like you put it out there and, you know, other people can kind of do what they want with it. And it really gained, you know, a lot of popularity, but there, you know, it was a lot of lack, lacking, uh, it was lacking a lot of documentation and some of the things would not necessarily be considered like best practices necessarily. So there's a community fork now under the GitHub project named Manum Community. And then the, the uh, it's still just uh, Manum. And I think they've even taken the PyPI you know, like when you pip install Manum, now you're getting the community version and not uh, the original. So it's all kind of been passed over to that. And they've they've done a lot of they've they've done a lot of work on the documentation, and they've done a lot of work on even the the, the API and everything to to make it a little bit more friendly and follow best practices and you know like the, the packaging behind it and everything. So, anyways, it's just a it's a it's a neat project, and it's I'm I'm happy to see that there's a community growing around it. And that, you know, there's some people that are really devoting their time to, to improving this and, uh, and keeping it up to date and, and all that kind of stuff. So, and I'm sure Grant is very appreciative of that as well, because it's, it's not like his main focus, right? Like he's, he's really about communicating mathematics and not developing a, uh, an animation library. Nice. Yeah. That's totally up your alley too with the math animations. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been working on creating some using it? I've only like kind of, dip my toes in the water, so to, so to speak. I haven't really done anything too uh, complicated with it. But yeah, now that there's, you know, better documentation and everything, it's, it's something I want to uh, dive into more deeply and possibly even contribute to. They are asking for help with, with uh, improving the docs and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, maybe I'll end up uh, contributing to it. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So my project is in the PDF realm which is seems to be a bit of a theme for me also. <laughs> and um, this one's called PDF ME or PDF me subtitle is makes make PDFs easily. And it's by N Andres Sierra, um, who's a software developer from Columbia. It's a nice little PDF library. It's actually very cool. The kinds of things that have been implemented into it. It has a, actually a pretty good PDF uh, read the docs site with a tutorial diving you into it and the primary idea behind pdfme is is to just get you into creating pdfs without necessarily having to you know speak the you know the pdf document format language right <laughs> and um this one is doing some of that heavy lifting for you so you're almost sort of setting stuff up as like I don't know, it looks a little bit like JSON to me, or these kind of nested dictionaries of sections and headers and footers. And yeah, I don't know. I, I played around with it for a little bit here. It uh, lets you do rich paragraphs, you know, with fonts and colors and sizes and that whole rich text kind of looks and, mm-hmm. and so forth. You can do tables, and that includes, you know, formatting the tables with fills and borders and stuff. The, the, the area that I hadn't seen in some other libraries were these sort of content boxes where you know, if you think of like a magazine and how an article layout would potentially have these sections with multi columns or images kind of embedded in there. Um, so your PDF page document could have, you know, this sort of breakout area that is like this content box, which I, I think is really slick and has like wrapping for that. 
Yeah. All the linking uh, for like internal document linking with the URLs is in there with, you know, the color highlighting, you get to pick all that sort of stuff. And then it you know, can out link outside outlines. Um, I think I already said headers and footers, but it, it's a neat library and it's really it looks like just sort of a, a starting point for for what's going on with it and so it's something i'm going to keep an eye on yeah uh, going forward but yeah so pdf me and I, I went to andres's github and he's actually doing some other fun kind of projects he's got a oh cool a tkinter forms thing called tk data um which looks interesting and then uh controlling music in your raspberry pi from any browser on the internet as a huh. another library um so i know someone that's into that that stuff yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I'm very interested in those kinds of things. So yeah, so I'm going to uh, follow uh, Andres here and see uh, where things go. Neat, yeah. Well, we covered a lot of stuff in a little bit of time this time. And it's fun always to dive through all the PyCoder stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Chris. This episode was brought to you by Sentry, helping developers see issues that matter, solve those issues in minutes, and learn insights to keep their applications running at peak performance. You can learn more at sentry.io slash or F-O-R slash Python and sign up with the promo code REALPYTHON, that's all caps REALPYTHON, to get three free months of Sentry's team plan. I want to thank David Amos for joining me again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the RealPython podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.